70 pf. The Merritt's belongings are stacked on three large carts. Their move to the mill will take them half a day. You're sure about this? Mary Jo half asks, half says, staring at their home. She isn't sure about it herself. Andrew groans. No. We don't have to burn it down. We could leave it. No. I'd rather see it burn than let it become a place for raiders to use or fall to ruin. Mary Jo pulls close to Andrew. We'll rebuild. I know. Everything you need is here. She touches her husband's head. It's not just wood, says Andrew, looking at their home. No, it's not. It's memories. Every inch of it has. <sighs> he sighs. I know. And she does. Almost as well as him. It was he that built it, after all. He's connected to it. It's as much a part of him as an arm. A physical manifestation of ideas brought from... From where? Andrew takes a deep breath. I can't do it. Elka, will you? You sure? Asks Elka. Andrew hands her the lighter. Okay. Elka takes the Zippo filled with high-proof alcohol, lights a torch, and walks into their home. Inside, on the living room floor, is a head-high, unlit bonfire. Once lit, the rest of the house will follow. She takes one last look around at what has been her only home, then jams the torch into the hill of wood and paper. This time, when Elka falls out of herself, it's different. She can see it coming, but it's too late, like waking from a nap on a beach to see a hundred-foot wave incoming. Yet, it's worse than waking to such a catastrophic sight, because she's leaving and there's no way to stop it, no way to do anything at all. She wonders if this is how she dies, her final act to burn her childhood home to the ground with her still inside. Hadn't mom made a joke about the bonfire looking like a pyre, something about burning their past selves so they could move on, start over at the mill, but for Elka, it's both her past and present that's aflame. It's been a good life. She has too much to be grateful for. Her final thought before the house goes up in flames is that it would have been nice to watch a summer star storm with a boy. Seventy PF Brisket scowls. You want to go higher? A couple more floors, yeah. Brisket grumbles, looks at the floor they're on, the 20-plus degree slant the whole building is at. We're on the 5th? 6th? Sandwich asks. Brisket nods. So we go up to the 7th or 8th, and it'll get us a better view. He peeks out a window, then tucks back out of sight. You did feel the whole thing shift, right? Settling, not falling. Sandwich grins. We need height. To see more of the city. In another building. And risk being caught out in the open? That's not better. Sandwich is right and Brisket knows it. All right, 
Two more floors, no more. I don't think we're heavy enough to be the final straws. Nor do I, but it isn't a gamble I like taking. Dire we go, the better the odds the house has against us. Quite literally in this case, Sandwich smiles. I want to leave Seattle alive, not become part of it. Fair enough. No more than two, and if we feel anything wonky, we'll get the hell out. Brisket chuckles. <laughs> wonky. The whole city is wonky. A crow lands on the sill of the window Sandwich looked out a moment ago. It tilts its head, turning one eye toward the pair. The crow opens its beak, then flickers. Now there, now gone, then back again. The flicker becomes a shudder, a picture seen through a strobe, pulled and warped, a jumble of shapes unsure of what size to be. Cut, pulled, stretched, shrunk and twisted, wet paint hit by a current of electricity thrown onto a wall, dried and fast forward as it melts and explodes. Then the bird snaps back to the form it was when it landed and flies away. Yeah, Sandwich says. 55 PF. Two shots. Two bottles hit. Dan's third misses. He sets the pistol down on the cracked wood table where a jar of water and a few boxes of bullets sit. He takes a few steps away, picks up a rock, grits his teeth, and squeezes hard enough to hurt his hand, then yells with all the strength he can muster and throws the rock hard enough to feel his shoulder pull and blood rush into his hand. That help? Grandpa asks a few feet away and sets his book into his lap. I knew I was going to miss before I even finished pulling the trigger. What the hell? Grandpa grins. Why couldn't I stop myself? asks Dan. Action precedes thought. Dan, almost 13, practically a teenager, he reminds Grandpa, holsters the big pistol under his arm and sits in the dirt, too upset to try again. What's that mean? You act before you know what you're doing. No, I don't. I thought about shooting, then I did it. If you touch a hot surface, do you think, that sure is hot, I should move my hand? Grandpa lifts his brows. No, no. And if you saw a snake out of the corner of your eye, you'd jump away before you had time to think about what you were doing. The best thing we can do is guide the process. Process? That's right. Our choices are based on things we've already seen, and a lot of the time things that have happened before we are even aware of what they are. Dan isn't sure he understands. The words make enough sense, but if he isn't choosing what he does from moment to moment, who is? If I go shooting, it's because I want to. If I go to bed at sundown or an hour later, it's because that's what I decided isn't it? 70 PF. And to think at one point in time, he'd thought it was all his doing that led to each new moment. The only way he could be in Seattle is because there's a Seattle to be in. If it hadn't been for Autumn walking into Abe's, he never would have had the option to talk to her. 
Ow! Autumn yelps. You all right? Autumn mumbles, curses as she lifts her leg and pulls the thorny vine free. Yeah, damn blackberries. Dan lifts a cluster of berries and sniffs. A sweet, almost honey smell fills his nose. Honey and flowers. Honey and flowers? She asks. What? Dan winces and tries to remember what it is they're talking about. The smell, says Autumn. I said that? He looks back at the berries, his eyes narrowing as he tries to place the last minute and finds nothing. His heart skips a beat. His stomach drops away. Then silence overwhelms him. He can't recall saying anything about the smell. Didn't you? asks Autumn, and she sounds so far away. Yeah, kind of a floral smell, he says. The past few moments are fragments. Is the pressure doing this? Even thinking about it hurts. A slow throb, but the pain is so much deeper than physical. It hurts to be. They continue deeper toward the city's heart. The tallest buildings have fallen or lean against their neighbors, dominoes mid-fall. Vegetation covers every surface it can cling to. Ivy crawls across brick. New plants grow from old, rotting timbers. Moss and lichen spreads over glass and rusted metal. Seeing plants grow from the side of buildings and cars is nothing new. That happens in Tucson, but nowhere near as much as here in Seattle. Maybe it's the lack of water or variety of native plants in Tucson, but there seems to be a certain amount of patience in the desert that doesn't exist here. It's almost as if Seattle's plants want the land back, want to reduce the city to rubble as fast as they can. What are these domes anyway? asks Dan. You know as much as I do at this point. The map is in a pillar of light, and that's inside the dome. Or domes. It was domes, right? I think so, yeah, he says, then asks. How was your dad so old? How? You know what I mean. He's lived twice the time most people do. A hundred and twenty-four? How is that possible? I have no idea. Autumn shrugs, then points. Look. Ahead, a dozen buildings lean into each other and form a tunnel. Light filtered through hanging roots is seen at the end a block away. A small forest grows atop the surface of the buildings. We're going under that? Dan asks. Of course. You think it's safe? His eyes narrow. That's a lot of weight. And us underneath will make it fall? Hearing her say it aloud makes his concern seem stupid. No, he shrugs and chuckles, then winces as new layers of pain crack open and fill his vision with spots. Behind the pressure, or within it, there's a hint of calm persistence. Someone searching a fog-laden forest on a moonless night. Then it's gone leaving only the pain of the pressure. Seventy PF There's smoke, but Elka is still inside. Mary Jo's melancholy smile evaporates. Andrew! Elka! Uh, 
Andrew breaks into a sprint. No, 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 no. Of all the times for her illness to strike, why now? Mary Jo lets out a shuddering cry. Her trust in Andrew connects them, a cord of light that runs between them. Their true selves, beneath all the leather skins that even married couples wear around each other, shining through. There are those rare times when the hides get tossed aside, and two beings stand in the light of unfiltered truth bound by love. Love sits at the core of the beam. Andrew has seen what it's like to wear leather through the course of their marriage. When the old, rotting skins are worn and the beam of light that connects them is threatened, lies become a sickness, a black mold that works its way between them. As the lies eat through the encasement of truth, that inner, all-powerful energy sometimes escapes and does awful harm to those around. Truths released in fits of anger cut the deepest. But in this moment, their love rages, the love they share for each other and their children. Mary Jo's love for Andrew and her trust in him drives him on. He charges into their burning home without any fear for his own safety, only concern for his daughter. He rushes past growing flames. Hilka! He yells, then gives thanks. He knows where she went, on the floor of their living room her right arm next to flames. He grabs her left arm and drags her away from the raging blaze. His face is blasted by heat. As he pulls her free of the room, the roof cracks and a steel brace snaps. There is a roar as the fire gulps fresh oxygen. Andrew falls out of their home and a second later he's shoved by a small explosion. He stumbles. Elka's hand pulls free. He whirls back, grabs his daughter's foot, and hauls. The explosion has rolled her face down into the dirt, and he feels her skin tear as he drags her. Five steps away, he drops to his knees, lifts her into his arms, stumbles, catches a long fall with a half-dozen fast steps, then falls at the feet of his wife. Smoke rolls off he and his girl. His face is covered in soot, and Elka is bleeding from her arm and face. Mary Jo reaches for Elka's left arm, and she sees charred skin that runs past her elbow. Husband and wife get Elka into one of the carts, then Andrew sets off for the mill. Seventy PF This is not what the seconds expected. Who are these two? They're the ones they felled before they stopped using the pressure. But why are they in Seattle and headed farther downtown? Why the hell would they be doing that? Brisket suggests that they could be here for the map too, but Sandwich thinks the chances of that are terrible and none. How would they even know about it? Asks Sandwich. I don't know. A grandparent? Brisket watches the pair. Maybe so. Approach or avoid. I want to talk to them, says Sandwich. Want me to help? Nah. Whittle, I'll be back in less than an hour. Have fun, says Brisket. And as Sandwich turns to go, he says, hey. Huh. Good thinking. Coming up to this floor. 
Sandwich smiles and heads down the elevator shaft. He pulls on a pair of gloves with padded palms and drops down into the shaft and guides his fall with hops off the inside wall. Once Sandwich is clear, the rope slithers back up and Brisket gives him a wave. Seventy PF. They walk through the tunnel. Water runs down the roots of the forest above and drips onto their heads. When Dan isn't thinking of the pressure, he's able to appreciate what he's seeing. But trying to avoid the pain in his head, the strange sights, only works for so long. An unwelcome visitor coming back again and again. The pressure returns with a pain so acute it's begun to feel like it has a will and a motive to hurt, confused and disorient. Then, for an instant, he feels an awareness, a knowing within the pressure, then it's gone. And even for less time, there's something else moving, then it too is gone. Before Dan can try to think of anything to say, a wholly different question comes to him. Above them, the roots hang from the ceiling of buildings like stalactites and have begun to move, worms and fingers trying to free themselves. Dan blinks hard and holds his eyes shut for a moment, then looks again. The movement has stopped. A bird is flying through the tunnel. Then, there isn't. Did you see that? Dan points to where the bird was. Don't think about it too much. It'll mess with your head. She says, don't think about it? How am I supposed to avoid thinking about a bird that vanished and roots that are moving? Dan looks back up and sees the roots are still now, at least where he focuses. At the edge of his vision, there's still movement, but when he looks, it stops, making him wonder if he's imagining it. The thought of plants reminds him of Remy and the little flowers in his home, and he asks, Why couldn't we feel the pressure in Remy's place? Not sure. I don't even know what it is or what causes it, says Autumn. Why did it have to be here? He asks no one. Maybe you should ask why it's anywhere. What do you mean? It's not just Seattle. She says, it's in Tucson, too. You never noticed? Really? No, I never felt anything like this. It's there. Not this bad. Not even close. Is there anywhere it isn't? Only two cities I've been to. Where? Denver and Detroit. Aren't those two of the biggest cities? Says Dan. And then he thinks of the map on her phone and how she's able to travel beyond this continent. What about the rest of the world? I've only traveled beyond North America a few times. Japan once and London twice. The thought of not being able to communicate with people terrifies me, or them wondering how I got there. I hadn't even thought of that. I think it's still there, the pressure, in Detroit and Denver, but if it is, it's super minor. So large groups of people keep it away? I'm not so sure about that. How come? He asks, but she's fallen into herself and isn't paying him any mind. Busy with a memory. What do you mean? He presses. Oh, Autumn snaps out of it. 
things I've seen. I got... She starts, then shakes her head, draws a deep breath, and tries again. I got stuck with some raiders for a while, and the pressure I felt with them was awful. Like here, but different too. Like it was alive. In cities, it doesn't do anything but try and crush you. With the raiders, it was almost like drowning in sand, heavy and moving. It shifted and changed. Seventy PF. The mill is ten miles away, a three-hour walk. Andrew pushes the thought of distance and time aside. Now and then his mind will try telling him he still has miles to go, that he won't get Elka help in time. But he ignores those dark thoughts. He tells himself that he will get her to the mill, and one of the doctors will help her. There is an answer to this problem, this awful piece of darkness. More than anything, he wants to find it this sickness that plagues his precious girl and wrap his hands around the throat he pictures it having and squeeze. Slow. Take his time. Watch it squirm. Slam its face into rough gravel. The feeling of Elka's face scraping on the ground as he dragged her away from the fire punctures his thinking. He shakes the image away. One more step. One after the other. That's all there is. Only now. Seventy PF. Sandwich thinks that if he could only use the pressure and make things so much easier, but this is fun too. The last time he saw the pair was when he was still in the building with Brisket. The guy and gal were headed west, southwest. Why? Why in the world would they be going deeper into the city? Sandwich gathers smooth stones as he goes, some the size of half a grape, others big as quail eggs. A grin spreads over his lips as he plans his approach and pulls a wrist rocket from a side pouch in his pack. 70 PF Dan rocks his head side to side as he sings out of tune. Downtown, going downtown, looking for the domes. Autumn interrupts, asks, What are you doing? Uh, trying to keep my mind busy. You almost sound like Remy. Was that you trying to sing? She snickers. Yeah, that's exactly what I was. Holy fuck! Dan winces and takes a few stumbling steps as the world swims. He tries going to his knees, but the world drops away, and to kneel would be to fall down a cliff. But he's already begun the motion, and trying to reverse it now causes him to topple over and hit the grass-strewn road they're walking. Too soon. The road was only inches away when it should have been feet. Dan's mind tries to make sense of what's happening, but nothing fits. Thoughts have begun to twist and facts are crumbling into themselves, reforming and shattering. The road bends into the sky where the clouds and buildings have become one, then all pull into a bird and land upside down on a pane of glass. 
A nail is being pounded into Dan's ear and he gasps. I can't. Nope, says Autumn and grabs his hand. No, no, no. We'll get the map, we'll get my tent and leave. I'm not coming all this way to back out now, she says and pulls him to his feet. Then the world is whole again. The pain is still there, but the road, buildings, trees, and sky are all back where they should be. How are we going to even get it? Isn't it on a computer? Do you know how to use one? We'll take the whole computer with us if we have to. My dad will figure it out. Will that work? Dan says. He hopes so. The pressure is tapping on the door that separates tolerable from too much to handle. I'm going to walk a little faster. I want to get this over with. Autumn looks over her shoulder. We still need to be careful. You honestly think there's anyone else here with this shit? He asks and points at his head. We are. Yeah, because we need some crazy map. Who the hell else would be here for the same thing? Seventy PF. Trees become goals. With each one passed, Andrew celebrates a minor victory. Make it to that one with a broken branch. Good. Good. Keep going. Now get to that one. The pine with the crow watching you. His feet pound against the forest floor, becoming the rhythm to the song sung by the clackety shake of the wagon. The crow takes flight. Train tracks on his right come close to the path he's on, and he knows he's a little over halfway there. He counts that as a major victory. His thoughts are pulled to his girl. How is her arm? Will she ever be able to use it again? He pushes the fears away, tells them to leave him alone. They're no help. The clack, clack, clack of a rail car bumps into Andrew's train of thought. The sound grows gaining on him, and when it's right alongside him, he looks over his shoulder. Hey! Mac waves. How goes? He says, all smiles, then notices a body in the wagon. He sits a little higher in his seat and looks into the wagon. Oh my god! You want a ride? Yeah, Andrew huffs. A ride. Yes. Thank you. It takes him half a minute to slow to a stop. His legs buzz. He hadn't wanted to quit moving. He and Mac load Elka onto the rail car, little more than a simple wheeled chassis with a pedal-powered drivetrain pulled from a bicycle. Once they get moving, Mac says he was taking it for a test drive, one of his most recent creations. It zips along the rails, going four times as fast as what Andrew could manage on foot. Ten minutes later, Mac hits the brakes as they pull into the yard. Andrew jumps out of the rail car, asks, You got a card I can borrow? Hovering over his girl, ready to carry her the rest of the way if need be. 70 PF Sandwich loads one of the bigger rocks into his slingshot and aims ahead of the pair. Like two lost lambs, they are so unaware. He wants to land the shot on the other side of what was once two cars. Now it's just one big lump of rust. 70 PF There's a clatter on the other side of a car and they freeze. A second later, Dan reaches for his gun. He knows he's far too slow. The pressure winks, and the instant it does, he feels two things. 
that watchful knowing he's felt a few times now, and another, the one that's been moving, now closer than ever. Then, both are gone, a wisp of smoke between fingers. Before Dan can even try to form words to explain what he felt, the present moment intrudes and he looks at where Autumn is crouched near a single lump of what used to be two cars. Animal? He asks. Autumn, holding still, looking this way and that, says, Maybe. They're near the tunnel's exit. Above them dangle innumerable roots. Water drips. Another fifty feet and they'll be back under clear sky. You don't think so, Dan says, his heart beating faster, and she doesn't respond. Seventy-five PF But where am I? The ocean washes against the shore. A bird drops from a tree's branch, opens its wings and takes flight. Where the bird's feet lifted from the tree, fragments of bark fall and catch the sun's light. Then comes the sensation of smells, so many, warmth on skin, a lick of breeze. But where am I? Find something, Helena is saying again, or for the first time. The words have lost all meaning, only another sound. A stream of wind passes through the forest. The birds sing. The ocean sighs. In and out. In and out. Wind chimes play. The sound breaks through the rest, weaves itself around every appearance in the senses, becomes part of each sight, smell, sensation of pressure and cool and warmth, the pairing of instrument and nature. This is what she means. Previous lack of comprehension subsides, the tide pulling away to reveal a hidden world. 70 PF Andrew's legs buzz from use. Max's wagon moves better than the one he left behind, and the path to the yard has seen recent maintenance. It's free of debris, smooth and level and he runs faster than before. Once again, only looking at what's a dozen steps away. Make it to that flat rock, that log, past those flowers. One foot in front of the other, again and again, and... The trees pull away. The field comes into view. Clusters of simple homes in waxed canvas tents. A hundred yards to the left sits the mill. Andrew presses on with all the speed he can muster. 70 PF. Sandwich ducks into a building. He's ten yards away from the pair now, close enough to yell at. He loads a pebble into his slingshot, aims at a car's side window, and fires. The window cracks and the two spin. The instant Sandwich let the stone loose, he's already moving. He jumps through a window and closes half the remaining distance tucking up behind a bus stop shelter eaten away by weather and rust, now covered in mold and ivy. He grins, his heart pounding. Doing this without the aid of pressure is making him giddy, 
lightheaded, and the ease to slip back into using it is so tempting. He looks through gaps in the plants and sees the pair hunkered down and looking. 70 p.m. Dan and Autumn hold still. Their hearts race. Why would a window crack? Neither know how to break the silence. Doing anything feels like it runs the risk of being the wrong thing. Dan feels that awareness that keeps moving is now even closer. Autumn draws her pistol as Dan moves to the car with the cracked window. He sees nothing, then feels the awareness move in a burst. He wants to turn, but doesn't dare. Dan hears a stifled half-whine, half-cry from Autumn. Too late. Too stupid. He fell for one of the oldest tricks in the book. 70 p.f. Sandwich knocks the gun from the girl's hand and loops his right arm around the girl's neck, placing the center of her throat in the bend of his elbow. His bicep is on her left carteroid, forearm on the right. All he needs to do is squeeze a little tighter and out she goes. Hot damn, what a rush. And the guy is frozen stiff. He's holding a nice pistol. Wonder what the make is. Looks like a Colt. Sandwich grins. Everything went as planned. You can turn around now, says Sandwich to the guy. You like that? Three times. The girl shifts. It's subtle, but he can feel she lowered her hand. No, 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 no. Keep your hands nice and still, miss. Keep them on my arm, if you would. That's not a suggestion. All I need to do is close just a little tighter and... Thank you. You'd be out before you saw the darkness close in. 70 p.f. The thread of Dan's life is pulled tight enough to carry a tune. Now, shards of glass reflecting his every choice are being thrown at that thread. One misstep and that's that. This big guy knows too much about that choke to leave any hope he's stupid. Only used a slingshot to ambush them and he did it alone. And it looks like he's enjoying himself. He's calm. The expression on his face reads of an assuredness Dan has only dreamed of seeing in himself. 70 p.f. Andrew stops at the steps of the mill and yells, Help! Please! I need a doctor! He's never wanted anything so bad as he wants someone to come help his girl. Flakes of charred skin float in a puddle of blood on the cart's bottom. A man rushes out of the mill. Andrew? Runer's eyes drop to Elka. Runer, she's... This is what I was telling you about. Help me get her inside, Runer says, moving to help Andrew. Inside the mill, there's an older woman with a girl. Malayal, says Andrew. Water, a lot of it. The woman leaves. Heather, he says to the girl. Towels in my bag. The girl leaves just as fast. 70 p.f. Autumn chokes. The man's arm against her throat is pulling darkness into the edges of her vision. What do you want? Dan says. To know what you're doing in Seattle, the guy says. Are you immune to it? Immune to what? He sounds happy, interested. Dan sees two options. 
The first is clouded in a fog of unknowns, impossible to see the next choice with true clarity. Every option is muted, dull, lacking definition, and yet, somehow, the fog is alluring. Denial takes the form of hope in that place. Each ill-defined choice whispers that it could be the right one. The second option is a tunnel of pure darkness. If there's anywhere to step, it's impossible to see, but there's a light at the end. The tunnel asks for the traveler to trust that firm ground will meet each step into the unknown. Dan steps into the tunnel, aims for the light, and puts one foot in front of the next. Immune? To this? Dan points at his head, and the man nods. No. I wish. I think I'd be willing to trade a toe for that. It'd work for about ten seconds. What? Says Dan. Chop your toe off and you won't... Hand stay on my arm, miss, please. Thank you. If you cut your toe off, you'd forget about the pressure for about ten seconds. He looks down at Autumn, shifts his arm. Why are you in Seattle? For a map, Dan says, taking another step deeper into the tunnel towards the light. Autumn's eyes flash. Seventy PF. Sandwich tries to hide his surprise, but feels his face give it away. Well, you don't say. What are the chances of that? No kidding, says Sandwich. Nope, Dan shakes his head. Why do you need it? Let him say it. Don't put the name in his head if it isn't already there. Uh, to find Thomas or his wife. What's her name? Dan asks Autumn. Helena, Sandwich says, stunned. He can't believe what he's hearing. His arm goes lax. The girl spins away, glares at him, and swoops her pistol up off the ground. She levels it on the guy. Two steps and he's on her. Hand goes over the top of her gun, twists, and it's his. Let's talk, he says, ignoring Autumn. That's what we want it for. We've been looking for Thomas Pike longer than either of you have been alive. 70 PF. Really? Is he serious? He doesn't look older than 40. Who's we? Dan asks. No, oh, my buddy and I. I'll take you to meet him. I'm Dan, he says and offers his hand. Nice to meet you. Sandwich. Sandwich? Autumn asks. The man grins. Dan spills his guts, is totally open with you, and you give him some bullshit name? What are you named after? Sandwich asks. A season? She mutters. A what? A sea? No, Autumn raises her voice. A season. That's better than food? What one? Summer? He says, then to himself adds, Seems too warm. Too warm? <laughs> Autumn scoffs. Is it winter? Autumn. Dan and Autumn. Sandwich smiles. Nice to meet you. He and Dan shake. Autumn doesn't offer her hand straight away, but once the moment begins to become awkward, she does. Your name is really Sandwich? asks Dan. Yep. And your partner? Brisket. He's, uh, a building back. As the last word leaves Sandwich's mouth, he winces, 
a sting in his neck shoots lightning up into his head and explodes. Damn, that hurts. He grabs the back of his neck and massages the base of his skull. Not that it helps. So you're not immune either, Autumn says. Not at all. I think Remy must be, Dan says. Who? You have a friend? Sort of, says Dan. 70 PF. Runer heads over to a booth where Andrew has dozed off. He touches Andrew's shoulder, causing him to wake with a stir. Runer, is she? Andrew moves to sit, but his head swims and his eyes flutter as they try to focus. You need rest, Andrew, says Runer. You've done all you can. Let me work. She'll be okay, says Andrew, fighting to keep his eyes open. Her arm will have a scar, but she'll be all right. Can you bring her back? I don't know where she is, Runer sighs. How many times has this happened? Too many. A guess? asks Runer. Uh, no more than thirty, but over twenty, I think. When did it start? Years ago, when she was young, six or seven. Runer rubs the side of his face, shaking his head, eyes narrowed. He opens his mouth and his lips look as if they're about to form words, but none come. Any ideas? Not yet. Go on, get some rest. You need it. My family, Mary Jo and Rainer are. It's been taken care of. Liz sent a group to meet them and help bring your things here. They'll be fine. She has a room for you as well. A whole apartment, actually. Go lay down. That surge of adrenaline you've been working with is going to take a major toll on you. Take this key. There's a room four doors down from where I live. Elka will be right here and the rest of your family will be here soon. Go take a nap. Okay. Thank you. Andrew says and takes the key. There's a polished wood key tag marked with the number seven. Would you like some tea to help you get to sleep? I don't think I'll need it. Someone will call for you if anything happens. 70 PF As they walk through the ruin of downtown Seattle, Dan notices a change in the pressure. It isn't quite as strong as it had been. The change seems to be connected to Sandwich, and he wonders how. This other guy, Remy, says Sandwich. He's still here in Seattle? Right now? Autumn nods, and Dan says, yeah. Weird. Sandwich wonders why he or Brisket didn't feel three people before they let their pressure go. He makes a mental note to ask them about Remy later. Then takes them to the building where Brisket is waiting. After introductions, Sandwich asks them about Remy. Dan grunts and grins. Hmm, he's weird. Brisket looks up from his whittling project. How so? He sings a lot. He's rigged a drawbridge to his house and can lift it off the water. Hmm, he's kind of a mess. It looks like he rolled into a pile of clothes to get dressed, and I 
don't think his hair has a style. It's a disaster, but his house is spotless. Oh, and he has a pet rabbit. His friend, Autumn corrects. He wouldn't call it a pet. Yeah, Dan nods. Yeah, apparently he calls all animals his friends. Doesn't sound immune. Found a niche, says Brisket. He runs a hand over a few days' worth of stubble on his head, then rubs the carving he's working on. What's that mean? Dan asks. Brisket glances at Sandwich, who shrugs. Have you been wondering why it hurts so much to be here? Asks Sandwich. Dan says yes, but Autumn says she knows it's the pressure. Right, pressure, but do you know what that is? The way Sandwich says pressure is different than Dan's been thinking of it. Since he first felt it, he'd been thinking of it as a simple sensation like cold or hot. Too much and it becomes painful. But this guy, Sandwich, said pressure like it was a thing. As this dawns on Dan, he becomes aware that he trusts these two men as much as people he's known for years. He wonders if that's because of the situation. Is it because they're the only two people I've seen besides Remy? Am I willing to trust them because if I can't, then I only have myself? The question startles him. How much do I trust myself? The answer begins to form before the question has even been finished. More now than ever. He wonders when that started and sees the night he talked to Autumn outside of Abe's. Taking that step into the unknown and seeing what came again and again has led to here and now. I have no idea what it is, says Dan. There's no doubt in his mind that these two know what it is. It's how they are, how they act. It's the way they carry themselves. It's the way their eyes move, how they sit. The countless subtle body movements too small to have names. Everything they do says the same thing. What you see is what you get. There's a tickle in the back of Dan's mind. That thing Sandwich said about looking for Tom longer than I've been alive. Is he like Sam? Demands, says Brisket. What? Dan asks, confused. What you're feeling are unmet demands of an entire city in this case, says Sandwich. The death cry of Seattle. Where are you from? he asks. Tucson, says Dan, trying to make sense of what he's been told. Sandwich takes a sip of water. All right, that city's doing fine. Not rebuilding, but not dying either. Staying as is. If you knew what to feel for, you'd be able to pick up on it there too. Dan nods. That's what she said. Have you ever been in a real post-fall city that's doing pretty well? Sandwich asks Autumn, then turns to Dan. Would Detroit be one? Autumn asks. Absolutely, one of the best. You've been to Detroit? Asks Brisket. Yeah. Dan shakes his head. Not me. This is the only place I've been outside of Tucson. Huh. Okay, says Sandwich. Yeah, Detroit is doing well. Better than well. Sandwich pauses, eyes on Autumn. You've been to Detroit, but, now looking at Dan, you've never left Tucson. How'd you two meet? Never said I hadn't left Tucson. 
I'm here, aren't I? Yeah, how'd that happen? It's a good question, one Dan wishes he could answer. He knows how it happened, but can't explain it. Uh, opens his mouth, but doesn't know what to say. It's Autumn's tent, not his. She can talk about it if she wants. He wouldn't even know what to say. The words he wants to say sound absurd in his head. The two guys turn their attention to her. Autumn takes a deep breath. We got into my tent in Tucson and got out here. In Seattle, says Brisket. Yeah, she nods with the top half of her body. The two give each other a look. Confusion mixed with surprise, but there's not disbelief there. Dan starts. You said you've been looking for Tom for... But doesn't finish. Let them say it again. Longer than you've been alive? Sandwich offers, finishing Dan's thought. Yeah, how is that possible? We don't look our age? No. Well, how old are you? Thinking of Sam being over 120. Sandwich shrugs. Not sure. We were born a little before the fall, but I don't know how old I was when it happened. Younger than ten, I think. You too? I'm a few years older, Brisket says. You were both born before the fall, so you're at least seventy. But you look half that. We stay here much longer, and you'll see that change pretty fast, says Sandwich. Do you have any idea where the map is? We only know there's one in the city, but not where. Autumn sighs. No, Remy told us it's in a pillar of light inside some domes. You trust him? Asks Sandwich. Yeah. Domes? Huh. Okay, we'll look for domes. Not now, says Brisket. Tomorrow. We only have a couple hours of light left. I guess we'll have to talk because that's the best thing I know that helps, says Sandwich. <clears throat> Brisket makes a grumbling sound. Well, he can whittle, says that works for him. We could embrace it, that's what we normally do, but... Sandwich bites the inside of his lip. What? asks Autumn. We think... No. Brisket corrects. All right, yeah. We know Tom's wife is here. Helena? Autumn asks. You know a lot, says Brisket. It's my dad. He's older than either of you. I've been trying to find the Pikes for years. How come? Sandwich asks. My dad, he has these episodes where he just leaves. She does her best to explain the strange illness. He says Tom or Helena would be able to help him. <laughs> Brisket flicks a bit of wood from his latest creation. What? Helena won't help you. Maybe I shouldn't be so sure, but I am. She being here is why we have to deal with the pressure just like you. What does that mean? Dan asks. We can't embrace it like we normally do. Okay, and what does that mean? Embrace the pressure? What? Too hard to explain, says Brisket and sighs, not looking up. We might be able to show you, says Sandwich, but not here. You said it's demands? Asks Dan. Uh, unmet demands, Sandwich corrects. Dan opens and closes his mouth a few times. Sandwich chuckles. 
Yeah, I know. It doesn't make a lot of sense put like that, but that's exactly what you're feeling. You don't feel it in nature, far out in the woods, because everything is being taken care of. All the flora and fauna and billions of unseen processes taking place above and below the ground are handling what needs to be done. But a city like this, he waves his hand at the building they're in, look at it, it's a mess. How many things do you think need to be done to get it back in working order? Dan shakes his head. I have no idea. A lot, says Autumn. That's for sure. All the plumbing and electrical, all the weeds and ruined roads, the rusted metal and broken brick, all those homes that people used to live in, every single thing is a demand going unmet and you're feeling all of it. Have you ever met someone you didn't trust the moment you started talking to them? Dan nods, thinking of a couple people he knows back in Tucson. He couldn't say what it was about them he didn't like, but it's the opposite of what he feels around these two. Where Sandwich and Brisket have nothing to hide, the people he calls to mind seem to be hiding everything they could, as if they were uncomfortable being themselves, their true selves. Ugh. Autumn says under her breath, more of a sigh than an actual word, an understanding dawning all at once. No one says anything, and when she notices their eyes on her, she swallows and her cheeks redden. I've been around some raiders, not by choice, and I felt the same thing around them. It isn't just a city that has demands, says Sandwich. Individuals do, too. If they're not addressing them, you can feel it. 70 PF Elka winces. The salve sends spasms of pain up her right arm and hits her shoulder, causing her to shake. I don't like this. Mary Jo hugs herself, holding a clenched fist over her mouth. It's fine, Mom. It doesn't hurt that much. More uncomfortable than anything. Sort of. That was a good one. It's kind of like being tickled while going through growing pains. Tickled, Mary Jo sighs. Uh-huh. Andrew rubs his wife's arm. I trust Runer. He's a good man. Everyone I've talked to says so. Mary Jo nods. Don't mind me. I'm just worried. Andrew pulls his wife in tighter and kisses her head. He thinks of their home burnt to the ground and how he could have lost Elka in the blaze. Now, here at the mill, they'll start again. 70 PF Vallejo stirs her coffee. The small spoon scrapes the inside of her delicate cup with each pass. I don't know if I should scold you or roll my eyes. Liz looks giddy, the face of a girl before her first date. Oh, come on, I'm not happy that girl was hurt. Vlail's brows lift. I should hope not. Why would that please me? Gosh, Vlail, Liz leans in. From what I gather, they were going to move here anyway. Yes, because their poor girl has some kind of terrible illness. Liz nods, sips her coffee. I hope Runer can help. He's a great doctor. Did you see how well Heather did when Andrew got here? She's going to be as good as her dad, maybe even better. How old is she now? Seventeen? Sixteen? 
Sixteen, yeah, says Liz. Huh. Vallejo's eyes narrow and she bites at the edge of her lips. Only sixteen. I always think she's older. She's so tall like her dad. Sure is a shame about Anista. Liz snorts. Don't get me started on that woman. What kind of... No. No, I'm sorry. She exhales a slow breath through pursed lips. Not worth it. I'm going to make a few meals for them, says Vallejo. The merits? Mm, I want to help out. They don't know anyone here. Liz grins, thoughtful as ever. Don't you go pestering that man about your big project. Give him time. They just got here. Liz waves her off. I'm not that callous. Goodness. I'll wait at least two full days. Liz. I'm kidding. Liz laughs. I won't say a word for a month unless... Vlail's brows lift. Uh-huh. Unless he brings it up to me. Liz turns her palms up as though she's making an offer. Vlail sighs. Fair enough. 57 p.m. As Grandpa walks out onto the porch, he taps the wind chimes scoop. Why do you do that every time you come outside? Oh, this is where you are. Larry reaches for the wind chime but pulls his hand back before touching it again. Habit, I guess. I first did it after I repaired it because it hurt. Because it hurt? Dan, confused, pauses to give Grandpa his full attention. Not physically, not exactly. Every time I hear it, I'm reminded of your parents. And Grandma? Yes, her even more. The thought of her still stings. I think I'll always feel it. If it hurts, why do you do it? Larry sits in his rocking chair. It's dry and cracking in most places, but smooth and oiled in the hand rests. Because I'd rather remember and hurt than forget and feel nothing. He tries to smile, but the expression doesn't quite reach his eyes. He feels the wrinkles in his face these days and tries to recall when that started. He looks into his hands where unfamiliar valleys have begun to form between the mountains of thumb and first finger. The skin of his arms has become more transparent than he remembers. How much longer now? And how should he bring it up to Dan? Surely the boy has considered it. Another day, he tells himself. He'll come up with something soon, but not today. 70 p.f. Dan wakes to the smell and sound of cooking food and the broken pattern of the pressure's throb. Not pressure, but pressure, he tells himself. His head aches in ways he never would have thought possible. He wonders if he'll ever be pain-free again. Maybe this'll scar my mind, or break something that can't be fixed. Dan, sandwich, lays a hand on his shoulder. Yeah? You okay? Dan sits up. Autumn and Brisket are talking near a window. Autumn points at something and Brisket nods. I guess, Dan says. Head hurts. Try accepting it, says Sandwich. Fighting won't work. You'll never beat a whole city, he smiles. Accept it? 
Is that what you meant when you said you embrace it? No. Sandwich sits and runs a tattooed hand over the lower half of his face. It's so much easier to show, but I'll try to explain. Uh, imagine you're in an ocean. You can try fighting it. No, no, I'm not in water. Splash around in the very water you're trying to forget is there. That's kind of what keeping your mind busy with conversation is like, which is why it works for a time. It serves as a distraction, but little more. Then, how is embracing it different, or accepting it? Imagine the ocean again. You're still in the water, but you stop lashing about. You calm yourself, take a deep breath, and say, Okay, this is where I am. I am in the ocean. What am I going to do about it? Once you do that, you can decide to swim to shore and get out of the water. Like right now, you could leave at any time, pick a direction and start walking, keep going until you get out of Seattle, 20 miles away and you'd feel nothing. That's accepting it. Sandwich nods. He pulls his pack to his side and takes a chunk of cured meat out of one of its pockets, tears it in two and hands half to Dan. Sounds like what we've been doing, trying to keep our minds busy is the worst thing to do. Like bleeding and saying, oh, I'm going to go read a book so I don't have to think about this. Sandwich chuckles. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Dan thinks for a moment. Then, he says, what's embracing it? Sandwich grins. Ah, yeah, that's when you understand you are the water. Huh? And for a reason he couldn't explain, that answer doesn't surprise him. It fits in place, the final puzzle piece that finishes the whole. Why are you looking for this map? asks Sandwich. It's her dad, Sam, that wants it. He thinks that Thomas and Helena Pike might be able to fix the world. Brisket turns from the window, asks, Fix it how? Dan shrugs and looks at Autumn. Autumn spreads her hands. My dad doesn't even know what Tom could do, but he's convinced the world would be better with him in it. Oh, it would. I can promise you that, says Brisket. What's so great about this guy? asks Dan. Does he know how to stop the star storms? Sandwich chuckles. Stop the... No, that's not something that can be stopped. That's like trying to stop the sun from rising and setting. What he knows is how to teach people to be the best versions of themselves. What's that mean? asks Dan. Best for who? Sandwich's brows lift. That's a good question. Best for the individual? Best for the group? Best for the whole world? For now and for all time, past and present? Before Sandwich and I met Tom, we were a couple of kids that probably would have been dead in a few years. The world a year after the fall seemed like a world for the taking to a couple of guys in their teens. Who was going to stop us from doing anything we wanted? Your parents? asks Dan. Brisket scoffs, looking out the window again. Sandwich chuckles. No, our parents were still trying to understand what had happened. I don't know if they ever figured it out, but we knew within days that this was how things were. There was no more police or military, 
No more law or governments. We made the rules or didn't make them. That's how we lived for a couple of years until Tom found us. He stopped us from doing something uh, truly vile and showed us a different way to live. He taught us about the pressure, how to embrace it. That's why we want to find him. All the things he showed us he can teach others. Brisket and I don't understand why we still look like we're in our 40s. We know how to use the pressure to help us, but we don't understand it the way Tom did. Why don't you just teach people what you do know? asks Dan. Because we don't know what Tom knew, says Brisket from next to the window. But you know more than most people, like me. Brisket nods to himself, but says nothing. He doesn't have a good response to that. If we don't find the map here, that's exactly what I'm going to do, says Sandwich. Brisket and I have had this conversation many times. Seventy-two PF. Two days after they watched the stars fall, Dan sees Elka coming up the tracks. They catch each other's eyes, and a connection is made that feels like trying to hold lightning. It'd be so easy to look away, but holding on is too damn exciting. At the same time, a smile spreads over each of their faces. Hey, says Dan. Hi. Find any good ones? Elka serves as her father's main tree finder, picking out those best for turning to lumber and has been down south a few miles searching for trees that will become the new additions to the mill. Elka looks back the way she came. A whole grove. I'll be heading back to the mill. Now? She tilts her head, shrugs. Not this second, but soon, once I talk to my dad. Oh. It isn't far. She grins. Dan wonders if that's an invitation to visit her. I know, but we're pretty busy here. I see. Crap. He runs into that tunnel, right toward the light, and hopes there's ground to catch his feet, as there has been every time before. I'm sure I could come out for a visit. We have to restock now and then, he says, and Elka smiles at that. Could I come see you? He asks. His heart feels all sorts of misshapen trying to beat in time to an unfamiliar pattern and fill spaces it's never known. I'd like that. Me too, he says. She laughs. I'd hope so. You just asked it. Right. Yeah, I... I wasn't thinking. He feels his face warming, banging around in the pitch-black tunnel, the light forgotten. Then he sees it and begins to crawl that way. I'm bad at this he says, finding his footing again. Hmm? Whatever this, he waggles his hand in front of him, is. Whatever it is, it feels amazing. New, hidden magic seeing the light of day for the first time since the dawn of consciousness. Talking? She lifts her brows. This isn't just talking. Unless, oh, piss. Did he misread this whole thing? I... Talk to your dad, to Mac, to people at the mill. So, we're not talking? A hint of playfulness dances at the edge of her voice and her eyes twinkle. It doesn't feel the same to me. Maybe I'm alone, he says and gives it a beat. She doesn't say anything. Am I? He asks and wonders if that's going too far. Maybe you're not supposed to talk about the magic. She shakes her head. 
smiles. No. Dan grins. Or maybe talking about the magic is exactly what you're supposed to do, and too many people are afraid of it. 70PF Oh, Dan's eyes widen. They really are domes. He hadn't been expecting three huge glass soap bubbles pressed into each other, each formed from thousands of glass panels set into metal latticework frames. So much foliage bursts from all three that one might think the domes are the source of all Seattle's plant life. Rivers of green dotted with islands of bright wildflowers flow from each. Butterflies flutter along the river's edges. Ever since Sandwich told Dan about the different ways of coping with the pressure, he's been trying to accept it. Embracing seems impossible. See that there's no difference between it and he? How? At least accepting it is a choice. Denying it isn't an option. It's there, like it or not. And yet accepting the pressure, saying, yeah, there you are, awful in every way, and that's all right, is no small thing. This logical approach to the situation allows Dan to see the pressure for what it is as best he can. He still doesn't understand what Sandwich said about it being unmet demands, but he'll leave that alone for now. You think she might be in there? Dan asks. No telling. We've never understood what it is she wants, Sandwich says. Brisket huffs, shakes his head. And you're certain she wouldn't be willing to help me? Autumn asks. And your dad? Yeah. Willing to bet my life on it? Sandwich rocks his head side to side. No. Willing to bet a toe? Maybe. I guess it depends on what I stood to win. But you get my point. 99 but not 100. Autumn translates. <clears throat> Brisket nods, digs into a pocket and finds a piece of jerky. Dan draws his pistol, checks the loads. He thinks of the little wood box and the rounds Sam made. The instant he does, a connection is made and the pull to take it out hits hard. Dan! Brisket pokes him in the arm, a tear of jerky hanging from the side of his mouth. Huh. What are you doing? Oh. Dan swallows, now noticing the others staring at him. I was gonna load my gun. You're just standing there, says Brisket. You all right? asks Sandwich. Yeah. Yeah, thanks. And damn does he mean it. He wonders how long he was stuck there. 72 p.m. Dan lifts his hand to knock on Elka's door and stops as he wonders if there's a right way to knock. What should his sound like? Four quick raps? Maybe two thumps, a pause, then a third. He almost laughs at how silly it is to try and plan such a thing. Without thinking about it any longer, he knocks and watches what his hand does. Hello? Oh, hi, Dan. Andrew pulls the door open. Come in. Elka should be ready soon, I think. Elka? He calls into the apartment home. Minute. Elka calls from her room. Andrew asks Dan if he can get him anything while they wait. Something to drink? Says Dan and notices he keeps on opening and closing his hands. 
Andrew's eyes twinkle. You said the magic words. He uncorks a bottle and pours amber liquid into two glasses. Been trying to reduce the honey to as little as it'll stand. It's all right, but I think I need to tweak it some more. Dan looks the drink over. He's had it a few times and still isn't a big fan, but it's growing on him. When did you start making this? Uh, this batch or making kombucha at all? Asks Andrew, and Dan nods to the latter. Uh, uh, let's see. Before you got to the mill? Oh, yeah. It was a few months after Mary Jo was pregnant with Elka. I'd read something about probiotics and figured it'd be good for her to get some into her diet. Was it? A good idea? Shoot, I haven't a clue. Didn't hurt any from what we can tell. She drank it while pregnant with Rainer, too. Besides Elka's awful illness, we have two perfectly healthy children. Have you ever seen the mountain you named him after? I assume that's where you got the name. Andrew nods. Well, only in pictures. Mary Jo and I have talked about going north, maybe do some hiking around the area, but life keeps on having other ideas. Maybe later. Elka taps Dan's shoulder. An instant cold sweat breaks the surface of his skin as countless subconscious processes inform him of who touched him. He almost spills his drink as he turns. Hi, says Elka. Hi, Dan scans her. She's wearing jeans he's never seen before, a snug sweater, and the only pair of boots he's ever seen her wear. He's glad to see her, but that's always the case. Glad she's here to be seen at all is more accurate. She's only fallen ill once since he's known her, and it lasted for all of half an hour. Their only plan for this first date is to go on a walk. They've left the mill and are on one of the paths that cut through the surrounding forest. The afternoon air is cool. Birds sing and dart from tree to tree. Squirrels chitter and watch the couple from branches. What were you talking to my dad about? Asks Elka. His kombucha. Oh, God, Elka groans. Really? What? Dan chuckles. He's obsessed with it. You'd never know he was a carpenter the way he talks about it. Wood is work. The weird drink is his hobby. I guess. I don't talk about... Dan freezes. Elka takes another step, stops. What? Oh. Ahead, on the path, is a family of deer. Buck, doe, and fawn. The fawn takes a few steps, wobbles, gains its balance by leaning against its mother, then nibbles at grass and flowers. The doe, watching the pair of humans, nudges her offspring. The buck remains still as doe and fawn scoot away. The fawn turns, stumbles, hides behind its mother. Fingers of light reach through the forest canopy and brush the deer, catching on the buck's antlers, the fawn's spots, and the doe's nose. The two groups stand there watching each other. Dan reaches his hand over to Elka's and weaves his fingers into hers. She moves a step closer, leans her head on his shoulder. They're perfect, she whispers. A reply comes to mind, but it feels silly. He tells himself to say it anyways. It's what you're thinking. Any longer and it'll be weird. You've got about two seconds before it becomes awkward. 
I think you are, says Dan. Even with my problem? Asks Elka. Yeah, even with that. With those few shared words between them, a bond forms. They both feel it. A connection is made. The space between them isn't so wide now. True, they're standing side by side, but this constriction happens on a level beyond the physical. Neither of them has felt so close to anyone before. It's the removal of the leather skins we wear to hide our true selves. Too worried others won't like what they see underneath all the masks and personas we don. Taken off, even for a moment, allows the golden, pure light at the cores of them to shine. The deer family, sensing no danger, eats for another minute, then wanders into the woods. That was when Dan knew he'd fallen for her, when he understood he'd do anything to give her a single moment free of suffering. 70 PF Autumn whispers, What? Dan shakes his head. Thought I heard something. She looks around. Someone? No, a wind chime. You too good? Sandwich asks. Autumn glances at Dan and he gives her a nod. Yeah, she says. Even as they're heading toward the domes, Dan can't shake the sound from his mind, the soft song of a wind chime, but there's no wind. Of course that's here, on the ground, where buildings surround them. Plants, the beautiful mess of a rotting city. There could be a chime up there, hanging from a balcony or window, no time to think about that now. They're entering the domes, pushing past ivy, stepping around shrubs, sliding by tree trunks. Inside the dome, it's even more difficult to get around. There's no end to the plants. The whole interior has been taken over. Navigating their way requires less walking and more climbing, a massive nature-made jungle gym. They reach what looks to be the middle of the dome. Autumn and Dan are out of breath while the other two show no signs of having done anything. How about you two stay down here at ground level? Search the perimeter. We'll check the other floors, says Sandwich. Will there be anything up there? Dan asks. Broken walkways droop, pulled by the weight of plants growing in pockets of rust. Moss covers the railings and lines the dome's framework inside and out. Sandwich scans the interior. Guess we'll find out. Your pal's at a pillar of light. Maybe that has something to do with the sun. Yeah, maybe, says Dan, then more to himself than anyone else says. No telling what he meant. Works for me, says Autumn. I need a water break anyway. We'll meet you back here in a bit. Okay, Dan sits takes his pack off. How are you going to get a... Oh, all right, that works. The two men scale nearby trees and fallen sections of the dome with adroit agility and speed that belies their age. Even with all their gear, they make it look easy, like gymnasts in their prime. The farther the pair goes, the more the pressure builds, darkness creeping in as a flame dies. It takes an effort of will for Dan and Autumn to keep their eyes open. 
a piercing pain that starts behind their ears begins to worm its way toward the center of their heads. Their breaths come quick and shallow. A cold sweat breaks out over their skin. Their stomachs churn. They're cold and hot at the same time, burning up while shivering. <laughs> 